Welcome to this Women in Safety podcast. This is a show that provides a supportive space for women in safety careers. We break down the barriers and provide opportunities for growth. Make sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and join us. Now, here's your Women in Safety podcast host, Tamara Paris. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Women in Safety Show. We've got a great episode for you, and I'm just going to hand it right over to my co-host, Donna. Donna, take it away. Hi, folks. Welcome to our fourth Women in Safety Morning Show, and thanks, Tamara, for facilitating and and doing all the hard work in the background. So for those that have joined before, you know I'm Donna. Um, I've been in health and safety now for 22 years, and this is really my opportunity to rant about all those things that bug me when it comes to the emotional safety of women and the disadvantage for women. And I'm pleased that the the tribe that we've got today is growing, so we've got some new faces today. So I'm just going to hand over for everybody to introduce themselves. So Kizzy, say hello. I knew you'd choose me first. Um, so I'm Kizzy Augustine. I am a health and safety partner, stroke solicitor, advocate, lawyer um, in the UK. I practice health and safety defence work, which means I represent companies and senior individuals to um, assist with complying with the law in the UK as convoluted as it can be. Um, But also doing that from a proactive stance is is giving them the the tools that they need to be compliant, but also helping them if there is an incident. That's pretty much what I do. Oh, so glad you could join us today. And we've also got a new male ally with us. So Tim, say hello. Thanks, Donna, and hi, everyone. So I'm, I'm Tim. Um, I think I've probably beat you, Donna. I think I've been in um, health and safety now for over 25 years. Interestingly, worked in various aspects of the profession, uh, very much with a regulator uh, for both here in the UK, where I am now, and also in Australia, which was a very interesting experience. I may touch on in a little bit around um, how it was to be part of the health and safety profession, the regulator in Australia. And more recently, I now am the global head of health and safety for a large international financial institution, not an industry that's particularly renowned for diversity and inclusion, perhaps, but we will, again, maybe explore that a little bit more later. Thanks for joining us, Tim. And then we have our regulars. So, Sylvia, hi. Good morning, everybody. So, I'm Sylvia Marusic, and I am an activational speaker on health and well-being, and I've been speaking in the in the safety industry for I just realized as Tim was speaking, it's like 20 years. I know you're thinking, how could she be that old? But yeah, it's been about 20 years. I, in fact, I cut my teeth as a professional speaker at our um, provincial safety conference here in Manitoba. So it's been a great ride. Love this field. Oh, welcome! Glad you could come back and join us. And Louise, Me too. you've joined us again. Hi guys, it's really great to be back on the pod. Um, my name's Louise Hosking. Um, I got I'm into my 30th year since I graduated um, in health and safety. So I've been a regulator, I've worked in construction, I've worked for a large global corporate property company, and I now run my own 
business and I think everybody knows that I'm a huge advocate for um, inclusion equality and diversity so I always enjoy these chats and I used to see Kizzy on a regular basis and I really miss her and I haven't seen her for ages. Covid <laughs> stop that I don't know <laughs> can't see you anymore. <laughs> oh I'm glad you've joined us again <clears throat> and then finally Louisa welcome back. Thank you. This is my my second endeavor with, with this group, and I I I thank you very much. But I think I've got everybody beat because this year is my fortieth year since <laughs> since I graduated, and uh, my my current position is as the global technical director for the Center for Chemical Process Safety. So our focus is more on trying to protect people, property, and the environment by protecting the process and making sure that 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 runs correctly so Izzy I work with many lawyers I get to work with many regulators and really nice people my experience uh, has been in operations I've been in in the corporate world and now I'm in nonprofit trying to give back so thank you for letting me be part of the group oh glad you came back so today, folks, we're talking about safety data and safety law. Um, it's not so much an exciting subject for some, but for me it is. And I think I heard a phrase a, a couple of months ago saying data was the new oil. And I think that's so true because when it's done right, it tells us so much. And I guess my concern in 21st century working and 21st century world, we're still not sex segregating that data enough. And I guess my first question to you all is, why is that? Why, why don't we sex segregate our data? Anybody got any thoughts on that? Well, let me start since I'm I'm probably the the least um, the least knowledgeable in the in the segregation of of, of data here. Um, I I think that that part of it when we look at considering evaluating uh, the needs and the differences are, are really <laughs> important. And we've we've grown so the the number of women in in all types of business, but particularly in industrial settings, has has grown. And if you don't have a seat at the table to establish what the rules are, then then often it goes being not considered and that that consideration is not necessarily out of prejudice but sometimes out of ignorance because you don't know what the differences are and so I think that um, forums like this uh, allow both male and female to look and say how do we improve these conversations how do we quantify what this challenge is how do we ensure that the right people are at the table and how do we change the conversation and the outcome so my goal today for me is to look and learn from you is how can I make a difference in this area too true I think that, well that's right, Louisa. I think when when it comes to why is it still not segregated, when I, you know, when when that question was posed initially, I thought, well, people maybe don't know why it's important for it to be segregated. So, yes, I think one factor is we're not affecting change at the top because those are the people that can influence um, differences. But I think the starting point is why is it important for, for safety data to be segregated? And I think in safety in particular, it's measured through metrics. It's measured through 
statistics and you know particularly with near misses injuries illnesses fatalities we in the UK have a lot of publication of statistics in relation to those categories but it's not really split into categories of sex or even any other protected characteristics and I, I think just businesses and industry don't necessarily understand the importance of it they're starting to but they don't really historically see sex as being an issue and, and why men and women should be treated differently in a safety context and it's clear men and women are different biologically they're different in relation to the jobs that they do their working conditions are likely to be different and more importantly the way that society treats them particularly in safety which is predominantly male still is um, is different so those differences mean the hazards uh, for, for women in particular are different and therefore I think the government regulators businesses and us um, have got to raise awareness of, of what those occupational safety, safety issues are for women and why it's important to, to treat women and men different when it comes to, to, to safety. I think that's a really good point. And one of the things I wonder, this is going to be a bit of a controversial statement right here, but I'm going to say it anyways, because that's how we roll here. I wonder if as women, we've done ourselves a small disservice right? By saying we want to be treated equal and we do, but being treated equal doesn't need to mean that we can't be different. So, you know, I, I do a lot of consulting in manufacturing and what I see is that women, and this is, this has been proven scientifically, women are at higher risk for certain kinds of MSI, musculoskeletal injuries, Mm -hmm right? Repetitive strain injuries. And that has to do with hormones, the predominance of certain hormones in women versus men. And we're talking, you know, we're not, we're not talking about people who identify as women or people who identify as men. We're, we're trying to be gender sensitive here, but I'm just saying, so mostly what I'm referring to females, okay. They have a higher, um, predominance of estrogen. So they're more inclined to, to develop certain kinds of repetitive strain injuries. Now, when we look at how that plays out in a manufacturing company, it actually would make so much sense from a, from an economic point of view to have women doing jobs that are not going to precipitate those things in the same way that it does for men. So if we had that data, we could do that. The other thing that happens is that when everyone is treated the same, it, it, I think it makes it easier for companies to establish their safety protocols because everyone's the same. And I think that's part of the reason it happens as well. It's just easier for a company. Everybody does it this way. And this is the data that we use. I think it's just, I don't think it's been um, a malicious oversight. Yeah, I think I think that there um, it's something we know, but it's that hashtag elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, and when you have organisations that are predominantly led by men, I think this is where we need to support our male colleagues um, in a way to say to them, do you know what? It's okay to look at this, to to look at 
how female workers are being affected by things. Um, and, and I thought about MSDs as well, Sylvia, coming into this. And actually in the UK, um, where our legislation is very risk-based, where we're sort of invited to, um, you know, that there's no sort of, there's fewer cut and dry rules on all of this. And, and we have to do a lot of risk assessments. Um, in terms of moving and handling, the last code of practice that came out around this in the UK did actually differentiate between men and women. Wow. Um, but in starting to do this, it, it throws open an, another barrel of worms in terms of, you know, women want to have equal access to workplaces um, and those professions that are much more physical are we are, you know we still want to have access to those professions so it it, it is a, this huge barrel of worms isn't it and yeah it's a difficult one to answer it's be careful what you ask for yeah <laughs> well maybe yes. not, we're not maybe we're not asking for for <clears throat> equality in the the truest sense of the word maybe what we're asking for is fairness and mm. and inclusivity yes. and, and a bit of parity that's what we want as women and i'm staunch supporter of, of of that in all aspects not just health and safety but in all sectors and what I'd, I guess that I'd like to see, and that was one thing that, that I asked, how do you quantify what this challenge is? If we don't have the metrics or the statistics to show what's happening and where the, where the challenges and the problems are, it's, it's hard to guess at something and evaluate. So getting that information in the first place, I think is the first step so that we can do a, a, a good evaluation of it. I think listening to you all, painting a picture in my mind, and I, I did promise I'll take you back to um, a, a while back in my in my regulator days. So many of you probably are familiar when it comes to set machine safety. And um, it was drilled into me as a, a reasonably young inspector with the health and safety executive around, you know, what distance a guard needs to be away from the moving part to stop a finger going through or an arm going through or a leg going through or a whole body going through. And there was like a table at the time and um, all based of course on average. Now what we subsequently know, and I know you're all nodding, is that average was based on European males. <laughs> so two <laughs> things happened to me, um, or I observed, I wasn't the only one to observe. First, first of all, that anthropologically, Males and females are different. We know that. And therefore, that average, um, you know, hazard distance between the, the, hole, in, the hole in the guard and the, and the moving part would be different depending on, you know, a male and a female. Also, then working down in Australia, where there's a lot of um, Southeast Asian population who, again, very different stature and physical size. And therefore, these, these um, distances didn't apply. People were getting injured. And, and just as you were talking, I, I can just can't you just picture the room in the 1980s or maybe even the 70s where there's 12 European males, probably at least my age or older, were, you know, very <coughs> clever people, I'm sure, and very experienced with all the data there, working out the average safety distance for someone to stick the finger through a hole and then completely bypassing you know, 50% and probably, well, more than 50% of the population, both from a female and from a, a, a sort of a, a race point of view. So, you know, I'm giving you a solution there, but I think that 
picture point, points to where we were. Are we any better now? I think, Louise, you talked about from an ergonomic point of view, I think there's a much better understanding. Maybe that's because I think the, there's, a, there's a much greater proportion of, of females in the ergonomic profession. Mm-hmm. If you went back into some of the more traditional um, heavy industry, is that happening? I don't know. I, don't, I haven't worked in that industry for a long time, but it, that, that's probably some of the area we have to be careful where we don't um, shut off just because it's, you know, a traditional you know, heavy industry. Day, day industry. I'm just going to jump in here for a second because I come from retail and I found it very interesting. I go into these departments that are predominantly female run, the, like, you know, in the deli, for example, and just even the where the equipment was sitting on, the slicer was set for an average male size. Meanwhile, you have all these small women like this trying to do the slicer. I actually had to bring in the health and safety person to visually see what was going on. So I resonate with what you're saying, Tim. Thank you for bringing that up. And and I think as well, you know, if we look at that anthropometric data that we've got, it's based on something that was, what, 50, 60 years ago. And and even for a male, that's probably not true now. So, you know, our bodies change. The the world of work is changing. You know, 50, 60 years ago, only about 50 percent of women in the population were actually employed. We're now up to something like 72 percent. So we've got more women in the workforce and therefore this change is, is absolutely needed now. And I think COVID, in terms of data, as driving a little bit of that, if we look at the PPE and we can see that the people crying out that the PPE doesn't fit them, especially in NHS and places like that, where it is predominantly women that, that need that equipment. And, and I think that change is almost being forced upon us now. I, I, but, the whole PPE, we always end up talking about PPE, <laughs> don't we? And this has got to be, you know, we, we need a global take on this issue we with PPE. Do. Because actually, you know, something when you drill down, um, you know, there, there are, in, in the UK, there are standards about, you know, if you're wearing a certain high visibility clothing in certain industries, that there's this percentage of, you know, pieces that have to be high vis and so it's not just a question of making smaller PPE it's a question of actually we've got to do some research and we've got to get new data on all of this um and you know if it's and 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 Louise I think we talked about this previously is you know you can you can raise this you know within your profession but if the organ, the organizer, it's a difficult problem to solve and it yes. kind of gets left on the too difficult pile. Um, and, you know, if women can't dress in the way that they want, need to dress for work and feel comfortable, we're going to lose women in our pipeline. We're not going to, they're not going to continue through in, in, in our profession and in other professions that, you know, uh, uh, require that kind of clothing. And if it's ill-fitting, there is a greater chance or risk that something will get caught because it's usually too big, not too small, uh, that something will get caught on a machine, will get caught somewhere that you won't be visible when you need to be visible, or that you cover up some of the visibility markings because you've actually put safety pins in it to make it fit, you know, where where you are. So I I think that the the point that you were making about being global, 
I, I do think we need to look at this on a global basis because the problem that's in Europe and maybe in the United States is going to be different than it is in Southeast Asia and, and in different places and culture ends up coming in. So if we can look at global standards or at least global agreements mm-hmm. on, on what the best is, then maybe that will help mm-hmm. all of us. And even something as simple as the, as the safe lifting limit needs to be looked at, you know, on average, and this is, this is not stereotyping, this is based on research, women on average are 25% less strong than men. And it's not just the safe lifting limit, but it's an endurance factor. And one of the manufacturing companies I work in, they have one particular product that get that at the time that I was started working with them. They, you know, people were hand packing uh, 38 pound boxes of product on pallets, all shift 12 hours. So they would move a thousand of those in a shift. You know, each, each person's hands would touch a thousand boxes, like do the math. That's 3,800 pounds that someone is moving in a shift. And originally when uh, this was considered safe and, and when they started the this manufacturing company it was predominantly male dominated now it's mostly female in this area and they're very small and they're wondering why there are so many repetitive strain injuries because they have safe lifting procedure well it's an endurance thing <laughs> you just can't do that all day long So we need to, we really need to look at something as basic as the safe lifting limit. 50 pounds for some women could be a little less than half their body weight. You've hit the nail on the head, Sylvia, because I would argue there is no safe lifting limit. There's no such thing as safe lifting limit. It's all about individual ability and obviously risk assessment is easy. We, We say that very easily professionals. And I know the general, you know, we say that and people look at us and roll their eyes and go, here they go again, talking about risk assessment. But again, I think what perhaps the pandemic's done is taught us to be a bit more risk aware and yes. stop having these, you know, one size fits all approaches to things. So absolutely support what you're saying. And if we can move away from this sort of notion of prescriptive limits and, you know, and, and try and be much more tailored to our workforce, whether that be male, female, whatever, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's got to be the way forward. I wonder Absolutely. if the way forward to, to to get the message across globally is to look at it like a, a you know what's the commercial impact of this and it's unfortunate because I think in health and safety we do want to morally do the right thing of course you want to look after both men and women so you're right Tim it's, yeah. it's an inclusive thing but also I, I find that businesses are more willing to accept change and particularly a culture change if there is a commercial aspect to it so from what everybody was saying taking PPE as an example, it might be inconvenient, it might be costly, it might, you know, there might be lots of practical difficulties in having the right PPE, the right high visits, the right footwear, you know, the right glasses, because all of that is different for women. What you probably have to get across to businesses actually is if you don't do this, the consequences are quite dire, because it could mean that more injuries to those who are not wearing the right 
protective equipment, which means more investigations, which means more prosecutions, which means huge fines, you know, and no business wants to be shelling out money when they actually could have paid a little bit of money and invested a bit more time and looked after their workforce in a proactive way to avoid all of those really dire consequences. So sometimes if you if you if you badge it up as a commercial issue, it, it, it's, it's swallowed a bit better by businesses, I find. I think you're right there. And I think the other thing we need to think about is is the fact that we have health and safety law and it's quite long established. It's been there for some time. And I think there's uh, you you mentioned it, Louise, you know, we, we don't have the research into this area yet. And therefore, is there a need or a want, in fact, to to start changing legislation? Because it's very easy for an employer to say, well, I'm complying with the law. I'm doing everything I need to, even though that might not be fit for purpose. And when I think back to safety legislation, if you look at it, it only really differentiates between men and women when we're talking about the threat to women's reproduction. Well, the risks are so much bigger than that in terms of the differences to men and women. So safety laws effectively were made by men for men. And is that now time to change? Is there something we need to be doing more at the policy stage and the, the legal stage? Yeah. Uh, should I start? <laughs> I, I feel the heat on me. Um, <laughs> short, short answer is yes. I mean, yeah. historically, yes, we know health and safety laws have been made by men, predominantly for men. It was to do with factory work. It was to do with, you know, making sure. I think the only way women were brought in was to limit the amount of hours worked by women and children mm. um, in textiles um, and then in all industries. And then we moved forward a little bit and you had um, the automobile plant where it was more about repetitive work so it comes back to your, your point about repetitive strain injuries um, and that being something that was an issue um, at one point and probably still is but that was more you know can we get production going employers being slightly unreasonable and making sure that there was this kind of monitored output everything came out quickly and the same without really looking at the impact on the workers and then when you get through I suppose war, the, the the wars and civil rights, and then women started, you know, we started piping up a little bit and and talking about some of the the issues that we were were facing. Then we get to the introduction in the UK of our most overarching bit of legislation, which is the Health and Safety at Work Act, which most of our, our regulations are, are stemming from, and. I think in the UK, and I don't want to pipe on about how, how great the UK is, but we're quite flexible in the way we achieve compliance and the Act helps us do that. And people now have more control over the work they do, how they do it and, and, and in, in, in what context they do it. And, and the issues, I think, around the laws is that it's not just looking at the legislation itself. It's who are the lawmakers. It comes back to our very first point when we, we talked about how do we affect the change and it's by leadership and, and changing um, who's at the top it's exactly the same with the law it's you know if we're trying to make workplaces more diverse and more inclusive then those who are hiring need to affect change in management we need to to see that at a at top level um we have the same in the legal profession you know it's an old boys club it's it's very old-fashioned didn't even want to consider flexible working probably until covid but you know it, it's it, it's been a really difficult slog to try and change those at the top because those are the people that are going to change what happens uh, filtering down uh, through to those at ground level so i think we need to change who who is creating the laws be more reflective of our societies whether that's in the uk or anywhere else um, but make sure we're also changing the outlook and makeup of those that regulate the laws and those that enforce the laws all of that 
I think, yeah, still at the moment is predominantly done by men in the majority, although it is changing slightly, but it's a slow process. So in short, it does have to change, but it, it, it needs to get there quicker, I think. I, I, I think you're right, Tim. I think the pandemic has, I mean, I just feel that health and safety has gone through a seismic shift in the last 18 months. Um, in the UK at the moment, we're talking about um, the effects of the virus on pregnant women. Um, and it's kind of throwing into, you know, light. well, actually, when people are doing their COVID risk assessments um, in the UK, there is a legal requirement for um, new and expectant mothers to have their specific roles assessed. And actually, how well are we doing that? And, you know, is it just something that is given to the HR department as a tick box exercise? Um, you know, and because it's women, is it not deemed to be as important? I, I don't know the answer to that. But I think that coming through this crisis is that we are looking at individuals in a way that we hadn't before. Um, and we do need to consider everybody's needs and we need to shift up those kind of issues that affect women. And we need to focus on it like we haven't before. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, and I, will, I, won't, I won't dwell on the, the old adage that those countries that have performed best during the p pandemic have all been led by women. We'll, we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> New Zealand! <laughs> Um, but they have Tim. They have. <laughs> I know. So I, like I said, we'll, we, that's that's a whole new podcast, right? Um, but if you think about, yeah, if you even think about, and I'll talk about my industry in general, which is the financial services industry, and a bit like what you said, Kizzy, very quite quite traditional, you know, offices, you know, centre of centre of cities, people chugging in on the tube or, or or on the train and the bus for an hour, working nine to five none of which really suits, um, well, it suits one gender more than the other, shall I say. And what the, what the pandemic has done, in my industry, and I would never have thought I would ever see this, is 95% is of people working from home. So that started it, and, that, and you can't go back from that. So the idea now that, that, work, that work is going to be a lot more flexible, is going to be more inclusive and allow um, different people with different lifestyles who and different needs to work in a different way, that will happen. I can't, I'm pretty sure that's irreversible. There will be some organisations who try and reverse it. I think they'll be, you know, pushing water uphill, to be honest with you. But I think that that will only be of benefit, again, to, you know, obviously to, 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 to women, particularly uh, those who are um, around, you know, family and children, but also, again, other sectors or perhaps marginalised sectors of society who've struggled with the traditional way of the traditional workplace. So I think that is irreversible. I think, you know, we, we can't go back to the way we were and we won't. I think and, you're and right about that. Softer side. I think there's a softer side of health and safety that we we don't ignore but probably a lot of society ignore we are very concerned about the physical safety of of men and women but what often gets overlooked is is the the, the mental the side of things and i think covid has certainly highlighted the impact um of a pandemic and how that can can 
establish itself in the mental well-being of mm. I'd say particularly women but it's not just women I think everyone is is suffering in in some way but we suffer differently and that mm. may be due to our, our different makeup I know I deal with the stress of being at home working long hours looking after two children who I could easily throw out the window at times and homeschooling so it's it's really difficult to manage everything I deal with that stress differently to my partner who is extremely laid back but says he's he's not not coping very well with being at home full-time as well so it's I think it's understanding what the impact is mentally as well as Mm. physically for women and it's it's such a difficult concept to grapple with because it's it's not tangible it's not it's not like a cut or a bruise or a slip and trip it's it's very much you know how do we deal with the stresses um, that we might be suffering well one thing that that I'd like to to share here is we've been at uh, at CCPS we've been hosting a number of uh, panel discussions, which are very much like what we're doing here and in getting industry leaders from around the world for oil and gas, for chemical. And one of the things that's come through, and I think a number of you have touched on this, that if you take the positive things that we were doing pre-COVID and pull them into COVID, like operational discipline and, and having understanding and basing things on risk and then the things that we've learned in COVID and push them forward that we get a better overall sense of where we are and that we increase this the standard of care for for all of us and I've been been very uh, pleasantly surprised at, at some of this and and where people are saying well, just because we did it for COVID, we're not going to go back and do it another way after COVID's over. We're going to take that as a best practice or something that we've learned and move that forward. So I'm hopeful that the things that we're learning through safety and health, that we'll be able to do that and do that on a global basis. Yeah, I hope so too. Good point. You're right, Kizzy, you know, it's those health risks that we often overlook. And when we think about health and safety, you know, health is there first. It's it's probably affects more people than, than physical safety risks. And the world of work is changing. You know, we haven't got that heavy industry anymore. We've got service sectors and the stress affects people differently. And, and if you think about what the research is showing us, women do suffer more stress at work. It's it, They suffer more than men and they tend to carry that stress with them after they've finished work and and you say guys about covid and stuff like that and you know the the mental load and that unpaid shift and all those other things we've talked about on our podcasts that there's even more for women to deal with because of the homeschooling because they're juggling things and and i hope you're right louisa i I hope you know we've seen the risks in a different light because of covid and i hope that carries on and and we think about those risk assessments going forward with a, a new lens if you will yeah, I, th- I think the other piece as well around all of this is that, you know, as we come through this, and um, you know, as a profession, you know, we've got to grasp this ball and we've got to carry on running with it, is that I think, you know, we've got to talk to our male allies, of which we need a few more, and <laughs> um, we always do, um, because we're... Uh, it, the balance that we're seeking to achieve isn't just good for for women it's good for everybody so you know our you know male allies want to spend more time with their families they they don't want to be 
they don't want to feel the burdens that they're sometimes feeling because they feel that they have to do everything. Um, so, and, and, and often when, when men are faced with saying, I want to take shared paternity leave, they're going to face the same kind of, you know, discrimination in the workplace potentially as women. And so, you know, and, and remember men are more likely to, to take their own lives as well. So, so we, I guess, you know, responding to the way that, you know, Kizzy was saying, using our language in a certain way when we're talking about this topic in a predominantly, you know, potentially male um, setting is actually saying, do you know what, this is a benefit for, for everybody. Yeah, I think one of the um, one of the important things, actually, before I say that, I just want to apologize for ducking out. Uh, there was a safety issue. I heard water running and I thought it was my daughter in the shower and I heard it twice. I heard it go on for a long time and it was him turning the water on in the bathroom and then he closed the door. He had the door closed. So I thought my daughter was in the shower and it went on for a really long time. So welcome to COVID and Zoom from home. Um, the, the comment I want, one of the things I wanted to say is that I think so many things would change if women were able to and willing to take leadership positions in safety and health. Yep. If we could have more women in leadership these things, you know, we'd have, you know, you started it, Louise, I think it was you that said, you know, we need a seat at the table. We need to have more women at the table to advocate for not just different, not just um, exceptions or modifications for women, but for men too. You know, some men are small, some men are six foot seven, like we, we need, this is going back to what we talked about, we need to have safety and health uh, regulations and and strategies that recognize people's differences. We are all individuals. Now that doesn't mean you have to have a policy for each individual, but that you have policies and procedures that accommodate. And I think more women in safety safety and or rather in leadership positions in safety and health would really make a big difference. But some, you know, is it because we can't get the positions, or is it because we don't necessarily want to be in that role. I think it's too two pronged. I think it's opportunity. The opportunity still isn't there. It, it's it's increasing, but it's not quite as um, open as it should be in terms of accessible to uh, women to get leadership right. positions in in safety. But also, I think it, it's in within ourselves as as women. It's changing our mindset and culture because it's known that if uh, and unfortunately, sorry, Tim, I mean no disrespect to you, but men, if they are probably if they've got fifty percent of the skills for a leadership position, they will apply. If a woman had fifty percent of the skills for a job they wouldn't apply in fact if they had 70 percent, they wouldn't apply so it's about changing our mindset and going for those positions even if we don't have all of the skills that set out on the job description it's having the ability to have confidence in ourselves and what we can do and what we can bring to that table to ensure that we get that that seat at the table and that's a mindset thing yeah that's you, a culture you know, thing you know something kizzy is and i am going to plug the coalition at some point I did promise I was going to. <laughs> you go ahead. Um, and, and, and I'm learning so much through this. Um, but what I'm finding is that whole 60 
you know, I only know 60%, so I'm going to apply for the job. What I'm discovering is that um, the same applies if you're asking a woman to do something that's slightly outside their comfort zone. Um, that's much harder for women, it seems, than men. So we need to, we're going to lose women along the pipeline because um, it, it feels harder for them. So we need to give them that extra support, you know. I mean, I had the most amazing foundation in my career. The first 10 years of my career, I was, I was, allowed to be ambitious and out there and innovative and I had great managers around me which doesn't say much for the next 20 years I guess but um <laughs> but that foundation gave me my confidence and I think that's where we need to nurture women through because it is really hard and and traditionally, the people that get to leadership positions get there by being authoritarian about because they're assertive, because they're hard, because they're tough. And when women are faced with that, that's really hard to deal with because we we have feminine traits that are emotional. And other women see that and they think, that ain't for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we all need to be a little bit more aware of that and supportive of it because it's not just women that are feeling like that it's men that don't have that authoritarian drive and every voice matters you know that's that's where we start talking about the whole inclusion piece yeah. full disclosure here i i am one of the the minority i guess that has been able to be in the, the senior leadership position. And I try to mentor both men and women to bring them in and talk about all of these, these different areas and, and ideas. Uh, it was difficult to get here, but I, like Louise, had some very, um, very caring managers that said, we want to get the best person out of this so we'll give you opportunities so uh, that's part of what we can do to make a difference and and tomorrow's going to mentor me but um you know is is to pull others up with us when we get the opportunities to be there mm -hmm. yeah can i just throw a little challenge out uh, I, I think it's been really interesting it's gone the way i expect to do we've kind of drifted away from data haven't we yeah. um which is fine <laughs> Welcome to our world, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> However, I'm just going to pull it back to data because I am interested. Because when 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 I was asked, I was like, "Yeah, love to do it," but I think I'm not sure I agree with the hypothesis. So I was I so I've only just told you guys now, uh, 40 minutes in, that I'm not sure I naturally agree with the hypothesis that we do need to do more. Um, with the data i don't know and, and more interesting just as a barrier don't forget data privacy says you can't collect a lot of the information that would help to um that mm. segregate some of the day some of the data so i think about my organization the data that we collect and how that informs me as a, a senior safety leader to to advise my senior managers I, I'm not sure that the, that's that segregation of data, how much that would help, but maybe that's because I'm ignorant and maybe you need to give me 
a bit of a perspective. I think it depends on the industry as well, but I do yeah. think there's some value in, in segregating it. So if I think about, you know, chemicals, there's certain chemicals that will affect women differently to men because women generally, you know, are affected more by the fat soluble chemicals, for example, just because of the way our hormones and our bodies are. So, you know, we do need data on that because it is more about just protecting women's reproductive organs. There's, you know, men have got reproductive organs too. Why aren't we protecting those? There's, there's yeah. just both and then uh, you know the the musculoskeletal injuries that we talked about that there is absolutely a difference there in how they affect men and women we think about stress we know that stress affects men and women differently so when we are capturing the incident data at work or the the issues and the concerns that are being raised by our people we really should be capturing the difference between men and women because that's going to affect then how we change our safety practice, how we do risk assessments. I don't meet many safety practitioners that when they do a risk assessment, they go, who might be harmed? They go, people, staff, workers, employees. Well, actually, it's more than that. It's women workers might be affected differently to male workers, and we should start to differentiate. I think the, the, the legislation that we've got, yes, it's come a long way, and I take your point, Kizzy, you know, we've we've got a bit of autonomy in the UK to do those risk assessments. What we need to do now is push our safety professionals a little bit more to say, let's start thinking about the sex differences when we do those risk assessments of who might be harmed and how they might be harmed because it's it's unique for the, for the, the biology. And use that gender neutral framework that we've got a little bit differently so we can start to be gender sensitive in, in our approach that we take as safety professionals. So I, I would argue, Tim, I think we do need more segregation and I think then we'll understand why we need it. I think the silence and the gaps that we've got at the moment means we can't fully understand the consequences yet. Yeah, I think chemicals was something where I know that there's been quite a few papers on this. Um, it's not my area of expertise, I will um, put my hand up and say, but I think data sheets um, are very general um, mm -hmm. and you know if we're looking at you know exposure limits for certain chemicals um, the day you know yeah we have to create a risk assessment going on from that but I think it's been shown that even the data in the data sheets is is very you know it's an, it's Generic. an average <laughs> person yeah you know women don't make good test subjects because we've got hormones and reproductive systems we're all <laughs> over the place <laughs> our cycle changes every month so we're not good test subjects so they do test a lot of things on on men and that's not always great i'm just going to stop us there because i believe we've got some comments coming in from linkedin tamara do you want to share yeah that? we've yeah thank you for asking we've had a lot of engagement today on linkedin so I want to say thank you to Paul and Claire and everybody for adding your comments. That's great. Um, Claire is saying that she, I still feel companies take a lazy approach on offices as assumed low risk. I think she's uh, in offices as it's assumed low risk. And yeah. how many um, RSIs with working from home and incorrect setups, long-term long impact of outsourcing and short-term profit, long-term impacts. So that was her comment. And um, Paul Daly was saying to Sylvia, the comment uh, about uh, treated equally but differently, um, that is an interesting topic that deserves more time in his opinion. So thank <laughs> you for that. I Can I just comment? I, I was gonna comment on um, 
the first the, the first suggestion about businesses being quite lazy um my experience in the uk has been that business have historically been quite lazy because they see health and safety as best practice or we don't really need it unless something happens that's changed a little bit and that's changed predominantly because we've changed the way the law is enforced um, and it's, as I said, much more proactive, much more proactive approach to health and safety to avoid those financial and, and potentially um, reputational issues that can uh, occur for businesses if it was to go wrong. So nobody wants to be in those positions. So they're being much more proactive as businesses and particular senior management are being proactive because not only can the business suffer as a result of, of health and safety incidents, but they individually as senior leaders um, could be affected. So that's something that's that's occurred in the UK much more focus on being proactive because you don't want the repercussions later on. I just also want to hop on that comment too, Kizzy, um, and that is that uh, there are companies, I think you're so bang on about the comment about offices and, you know, sedentary work being mm. viewed as, you know, not as dangerous. And in reality, when you look at the statistics, you know, people in offices have almost the same risk of developing a low back injury, for example, as labor. And it's because of the constant compression and load to the spine. And static positioning is really dangerous for, for humans. I used to have a radio show and I did an entire show devoted to sitting as the new smoking. And then everyone went to standing desks and we found standing is the new smoking too. The magic is the formula of Move. Sit, stand, move, sit, stand, move. And so what, what one of the things that progressive companies have done, and I've done a lot of this, is virtual ergonomic assessments at home. So I can look at somebody's setup at home and very quickly show them red, green, you know, really um, jury-rigged kind of adaptations that they can make at home that don't require a lot of equipment but just small tweaks that can make them safer at home. And I can show them some stretches and all this kind of stuff. Companies are starting to do that because I think what's happened now is people have been at home for almost a year and these things are starting to show up. And guess what? 90% of the people I have done ergonomic assessments with have been women. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, this, is, this, are this, shifting. this isn't the new science, isn't it? No. I mean, yeah. It's, you know, right now, you know, probably everyone on this call, we're working like we've never worked before, but we, we are going to get through this. Tim's told me that on a regular basis and I'm still <laughs> holding out for it, Tim. Um, and you know something, the data that's going to come out of this is going to create new standards new ways of working and I think you know bringing it back to talking about data again we didn't know so much of, of what we've learned now um, and I and, and I'm hoping that that research and that data and people are going to come out and they're going to write papers on on the stuff that we've been you know doing over the last sort of 18 months um so 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 my hope is that we're going to take that data and we're going to learn from everything that we've gone through and and we will see see it changing in the future yeah 
I think I think you're right. It's like I said. We need the scientists and the PhD students. We do, and we need universities to jump on the bandwagon and and do some more research into these areas. You know, it's 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 there for the taking, and it's so much that's just unrecognised, unquoted, unstudied. Let's start doing more, and let's find out. I think we had another comment, Tamara. Yes, um, I put it in the chat there, so go ahead and take a shot. All oh, right, Sarika uh, Rashmi. So she says the conversation requires the right mindset. I couldn't agree more. I think, yeah, you'd absolutely do have to have the right mindset to start having these conversations, especially at work, you know. And some of these su- subjects that we're talking about can be quite sensitive um, and they can spark some emotions. So I think absolutely. So as we're wrapping up now, does anybody have any final thoughts that they want to add? I just want to say for the leaders out there who are listening and kind of, you know, heavy sighing and saying, oh, this is one more thing I got to look after, one more thing I got to fix, one more thing I got to do. Please know that the things that we are talking about on this podcast ultimately should make your job easier, ultimately should give you more satisfaction, ultimately will affect culture and morale in whatever kind of workplace you're working in. Although it seems like it's all on your shoulders, it's not. You just need to be the person to give the direction that this is how we're doing business. This is what we want to do. And honestly, the only possibility is that things will get better. That's really the only possibility. So I just want to leave that as my parting comment. Great comment. Absolutely agree. Can I just make a plug for the coalition? Do, do the plug. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm I'm going to do a quick plug for um an event that we've got coming up on the 9th of March, which Louise is involved in and Tamara is involved in. Um, we've we've brought together um women's groups from around the world um to create One Wish, which is women and inclusion in safety and health. Um, and we're we're putting together a congress and literally we we have groups probably representing over 100,000 health and safety professionals from around the world Um, and we're going to have a congress on the 9th of March Um, and tomorrow I can probably put the link to that with in partnership with HSE Global Networks and we've got some really fantastic speakers so um, yeah, we're going to be talking about all of this and, you know, through that coalition, um, really raise the voice of women. I think as a collective, we're going to be quite the force to be reckoned with. So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Louise. Yeah, definitely a great plug. Um, well worth mentioning. Well, thank you, everybody, for, for today. Um, it's been really, really useful talking about safety data and the law and I know we strayed a little bit, but I think the conversation was really important because I think you're right, it does stem from the top. We do need to think about our leadership. Um, so yeah, thanks thanks for watching everyone as well. Kind of to, to wrap up and say thank you everybody for joining us. This is just an amazing conversation. I always love having these dynamic groups because we learn so much. So thank you so, so much. Thanks, bye. Thanks guys. Thank you. Bye, thank you Tim for joining us. Welcome.